the death phobia actually doesn't allow communities to fully acknowledge what's happening. It's like, oh yeah, that's horrible. Let's just put it over here. It's too much for us to hold. You know, the, the shame is too intense. And like you said, the feelings of like, we could have done something and we didn't. But from that place, there's not a lot of momentum to be moving forward. And in the time of, you know, my activist practice for the last 20 years, the times that have been the most restorative and liberatory around unjust death have been the times and spaces where there has been a lot of acknowledgement and honoring of death in general. Welcome to Intuitive Wellness, a podcast where I, Samara, and my partner, Lali, talk about relating to our bodies, identities, and oppressive systems, and share the tools that are working for us and our guests. This show is for witchy, introspective activists who struggle with trying to heal all the shit in their lives and in the world. If you believe that healing yourself is activism, you're in the right place. I am so excited to introduce everyone to Binyamina Aisha. I just from reading a little bit about you and checking out your work on Instagram, I'm just really excited for this conversation. I feel like we're going to get into some really important and under discussed topics today, just from what I can see, just based on what you're working on. And I just feel like this is one of the huge benefits of having a podcast is that you can have like the kinds of conversations that you wish people were having more frequently. So thank you so much for being here and just to kick us off. I'd love to know how you like to introduce yourself, how you like people to think about you. Mm. Well, thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I love having these conversations with like-minded folk. Um, so my name is Binyamina Aisha. I love to tell people that I am in service to the mystery because there is something bigger that I am in service to that informs all of my work and my work can look many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a ritualist and a celebrant, a birth and death worker. I'm an herbalist. And I like to hold and create space for people specifically in the thresholds and initiation phases of life, whether that's birth, death, gender transition, abortion, pregnancy loss, all of the spaces where we often don't have resource and support, those are the times and places that I love to honor and respect and support others. So that's a little bit of of what I do. That sounds so beautiful. This isn't really on the script, but I'm just curious if you would feel comfortable sharing a little bit about how you got into this work. Um, Yeah, because I feel like this is the first time that I hear of someone that is um, like working with people through all these different types of transitions as opposed to just like one specific type of transition. So I would love to hear more about how you got here. Yeah, I, um, for years I spent a lot of time in the birth world professionally doing like birth work Mm -hmm. and doing death work non-professionally, being raised in a community that had a lot of death celebration and honoring and spending a lot of time with dying people was something that for whatever reason, I actually really enjoyed doing when I was little. And I could feel the, the veil and could sense the veil really strongly and really enjoyed being in that place um, 
Whereas most people my age were probably not as excited to be in that, in that liminal space. Um, so I've been working on both sides of the spectrum in some way for most of my life. And what I realized is that there's a lot of support in certain areas around birth work that have no understanding or honoring of the other side of the portal. And I find that when I bring both aspects of that work together, they inform each other and nourish each other. And so I get to bring these things that have been natural to me and my creativity and natural to me and my, my family and my upbringing in a way that I think a lot of people are afraid to, especially in the birth work world, death and dying is like a, a taboo thing you never talk about. Um, and it's important to bring that into the conversation. And it's important to bring birth into the conversation of death as well. You know, some of the most beautiful times are when I get to see clients who are dying with children, with babies. All of a sudden, there is this portal that opens to hold us all in that space. So it's really important for me for all of it to be a part of the conversation. And sometimes people say like, aren't they opposite? Don't they oppose each other being a death worker and a birth worker? And I'm like, no, they are two sides of the same coin. You know, they're two wings of the same bird. And it's important that we, that we honor them together. Mm. I love that. I love the sense of like, um, just being so into tarot, like the idea that death always comes with birth and birth always in some ways comes with death. It's a big transition into I don't know. The thing that I'm thinking about a lot um, is the idea that like we're always on these timelines and like any time that we like deliberately make a major life change, we're going on to a different timeline and like our life is then going to unfold in a different way because of that. And as you're like talking about all these different transitions, like I know you also work with like marriages and gender transitions and like all these different moments where we've decided or life has decided for us that like whatever timeline we're on is ending and we're like entering into a new one. So that's really, that's such a beautiful and holistic way to think about it. And I'm really grateful for you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I, I love that you brought in the tarot because there is that cycle in the tarot, right? Of the expansion and then the contraction and then the expansion happens again. And so we get to go to another spiral of our experience over and over again. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and you started to touch on this a little bit, but like the idea of death being a kind of like a, ta a taboo that no one talks about. And I'm really just interested in your perspective on this like death phobia that we live in and what you think we could all be doing to kind of move into a more harmonious relationship with the concept of death. You know, death phobia is one of the things that makes me the most sad about our society and culture here in the States, because first of all, the only thing that we know to be true ever that we can ever count on 110,000% is that we're going to die. Mm -hmm. And it might be today and it might be in 60 years, but death is inherently a part of the process of being human, mm -hmm. of being non-human also, of being some type of creative force. And 
the impact that death phobia has had is so incredibly detrimental and heartbreaking when we live in a culture where if you get a line on the side of your face or you get a gray hair on the top of your head, it's the end of the world. People don't want you anymore. You aren't as valued anymore. We can't even hold the discomfort of an aging body, let alone one that dissolves or transitions in some way. And um, it creates immense pain. It creates pain for us in the present moment because if we are so fixated on getting older, aging, dying, we can't even fully be present with the experience that's happening right now. And I think that one of the, one of the beautiful things that we can do, even if someone's just curious about a practice, and it's like so many people have fear and anxiety around death, which makes sense being in the country that we are with all of the messages around anti-aging and uh, this constant aggressive attack towards the inevitable, which is the end of life, however that happens, um, that one thing we can do is just spend more time with elders. You know, we have no more... Um, very little intergenerational friendships, intergenerational community spaces for a lot of people here. Some of us are, are lucky to still have those spaces, but a lot of people don't. And so we don't get to be face-to-face -face with people who are older. I grew up with the deep understanding that elders are a gift that they are to be honored and respected. And that is a privilege if you get to be an elder, right? It's like you weren't killed. You didn't take your own life. Things didn't happen to where you couldn't get to that place. I think that if people are able to be more in a space of honoring eldership, their experience with aging and dying would shift. It's hard to sit with for me. And I feel like a lot of it is that I feel like I have this perception that older folks like are very set in their ways and like maybe would be transphobic or racist or like would not see the world as I do. And, and I don't think that's true for like all older people, obviously, but I do feel like there's kind of a, a stereotype maybe that that is like their belief system and that it's more strict. And so then it feels like harder to, like if we were to have more like intergenerational spaces to create community, like what would that look like? I feel like I don't have an example of that and I'm scared of trying with just like random older people, you know? Mm. Right, yeah, no, I totally get that. And one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, you can, you can search out like your, your people, your mm -hmm. older people, right? Because, because that is true. You know, there, there are communities of older folks that um, are transphobic and are homophobic and are racist. Right? So it's not like all the older people are totally fine. Let's just all hang out with them and it's safe. Um, 
But I do think that the more space we can create, even if it's just, I recently started um, just for fun, started a creative group with a few friends and there's one of us in each decade, 30, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And, you know, it's a queer arts group. I feel safe in the group with older people that are there. And even creating something like that within communities that we already are a part of and feel safe in. I had older people of this group tell me they're never invited to, to things of the young folks. And I'm not even that young, but you know what I mean? Um, and it's just something that we can create even a tiny bit of space for in the communities that we already exist in. Sounds. And I'm curious about both of you in terms of your relationship with death and the challenges you might have around it. Ooh, I, I appreciate that you asked us a question. <laughs> um, do you wanna start or should I start? You start. I can start. Okay. I think my relationship with death, it definitely has evolved over time. When I was younger, I feel like it definitely was more of like a taboo situation like my parents really didn't like going to funerals and like even if there was a funeral like we either wouldn't go as a whole family or like the parents would go but like me and my sibling didn't have to go and so it was kind of like an idea of like death and funerals are bad and like people we don't want to expose you to that you know kind of thing um and I think I definitely internalized that. I remember when I was either at the end of high school, I think it was like maybe high school had just ended and it was the summer afterwards. And someone who I went to high school with actually passed away from like a drug overdose. And I did go to that funeral, but that was like the first time I really went to a funeral. And I remember going into it with the understanding that like this was a terrible thing which it was for like on a lot of levels but I remember the experience of the funeral being like so it just like there was so much tragedy because it was like a young person and like all of the um like the drug overdose never just like in context it was like so tragic but then I also remember the sense of like shame too of like oh like this we failed this person and like um you know what can we as a community be doing better which i guess was generative but there were just like all of the emotions were like we needed to do something in order to prevent this and we didn't and like this is our fault as a community systemically and for me that has sat with me for a really long time the, the way that like, and, and I, I guess this is like a bigger conversation too of the ways that society can kind of, there are like preventable deaths, I guess, in the way that society could operate in a way that like supports the life of more people. And that has been like a something that has unfolded, especially as I've like really cultivated my own spiritual practice and gotten more into like working with my ancestors and like elevating them and like doing things to like communicate with spirits that have passed the sense of like death as an inevitable concept and also death as something that like we have a social obligation to 
prevent quote unquote has been like one of the things that I'm, I'm, I, I, I like, I struggle with that, you know? No, thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I really am happy that you brought up a few things. One, this idea that there's so much generative momentum that can happen when we actually acknowledge death. You know, it's like the, those two things have to exist. And, you know, when we're doing work, whether it's, you know, people overdosing or, you know, dying of AIDS or, you know, being killed because of transphobia, because of racism, because of homophobia, I feel like one of the things that can start creating a stronger foundation for that liberatory work is diving deeper into the acknowledgement of these deaths. Mm. And I think one of the things that happens with being in a death phobic culture on top of the racism, the colonialism, the transphobia, all of the things is that the death phobia actually doesn't allow communities to fully acknowledge what's happening. It's like, oh yeah, that's horrible. Let's just put it over here. It's too much for us to hold. You know, the, the shame is too intense. And like you said, the feelings of like, we could have done something and we didn't. But from that place, there's not a lot of momentum to be moving forward. And in the time of, you know, my activist practice for the last 20 years, the times that have been the most restorative and liberatory around unjust death have been the times and spaces where there has been a lot of acknowledgement and honoring of death in general, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. That does make sense. And I'm even thinking about like the, the concept of like trans day of remembrance and how that is, I wish that movement had more momentum, honestly, but like at least there is something that we do every year to acknowledge that like there is systemic violence and that it does lead to death and like those have been some of the most powerful things that stand out to me of like observing like making queerness more of a holistic part of like my life and my practice rather than just like my own like making it more of a collective experience rather than a individual experience i think participating in trans day remembrance has been one of those things that is like the most meaningful for me when I actually actively do something, you know? That makes sense. What about you? What's your relationship with death? Um, I think I used to be like really scared of it. And like for many years, I forgot that I was gonna die. Like mm -hmm. as a kid, I just, oh yeah, that is a thing that happens. When I was really little, like two grandparents died back to back. And I feel like it was just like, okay, the way that my parents talked about it and my family talked about it. it was like they're kind of still here like death isn't really like they're gone gone it's just like you'll see them in your dreams you'll feel them like it's just a transition and so I feel like I just grew up with like oh yeah my grandparents are still kind of around just not physically here um but then I was kind of scared of like well what what will that mean for myself when I die um I don't know and I think like like the ayahuasca made me feel a lot more comfortable with death and like to see myself as more than just like this physical body and I think 
a lot of our culture sometimes makes me feel like that is the point is like the physical part of it the material part of it the youth that's what's valuable mm-hmm. about me but I don't know I think I'm trying to become more comfortable with aging and sometimes it's hard and sometimes I feel like there is like a very linear like progress that I'm supposed to be making because I'm getting older and then there's like benchmarks and check you know that I have to reach and accomplish um but I'm, I'm trying not to see it that way and I'm trying to see like I have met some older people who I think are really cool and like don't necessarily think the way that I expected older people to think, I think based on my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then I think I also, when I was like leaning into learning about shadow work through this like teacher, he, he made this idea that like, we don't wanna see the world in binaries. We wanna see a full spectrum. And like, um, instead of seeing morality as good and bad, like it would be more helpful to see it as like life affirming and life denying. And I think it makes sense. Like he was trying to talk about like nature and earth and we're all in connection and we need to like serve each other and have this like collectivist culture. But I think it made me like create a new binary between life affirming and life denying. And like, yeah, like what about people who just don't want to be here anymore? Like Mm -hmm. they should have the free choice to, you know, leave if they don't want to. And yeah, I guess I'm still kind of figuring out what that looks like. Like, I don't want to tie morality into life and death and I don't want to see either of them as binaries, but I think I'm still in that process. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, a few things that came to mind. One, I think, yeah, the, the binaries that we just naturally turn to sometimes, right? I mean, our minds are meaning-making, categorizing things um, can be really challenging and especially around around places of death that are more complicated, you know, and, and like you mentioned, what if someone is suffering to the point of not wanting to be here and how do we honor that process as well? And looking at the systems in this country that don't allow the sovereignty of people in those situations even people who are terminally ill and who are ready to go. And that somehow we don't allow that to happen, but we still have the death penalty. It's like, what kind of reality are we living in? Um, It's an absolute nightmare sometimes. And I think one of the things about, you were mentioning plant medicine, is that it can start to dissolve the binaries of us and other good and bad, um, right and wrong, allow us to start permeating that membrane, you know, like I say, like the liminal membrane. And I was going to speak to, you know, I do work with clients who are in the dying process and their loved ones with psilocybin, with psilocybin mushrooms. And it has been an incredibly profound experience because they do get to see the veils come down even just a little bit and then they go back to our realm of you know their loved ones understandably freaking out and the pressures and the fear and then they get to go back into this space and a lot of clients when they are reaching the end point of their life not only have acceptance but have curiosity 
you know, have, have excitement. Even I have clients who are on their deathbeds. And I mean, I I'm getting chills just saying this, but one of the most powerful experiences I had was with a woman who had ALS and um, was on her deathbed and she had an ear to ear grin. And her last words were, I can't wait for what's next. You know, so it's like there, there's so much possibility within these realms if we actually allow space for them. And it's really hard. And I wanted to also speak to the way that capitalism informs our death phobia. Like you were saying that as you get older, there are these milestones and guideposts that you're supposed to achieve. And if we're in a culture that says, well, by the time you're 25, you should have this. By the time you're 30, you should be doing this productivity and aging are so intertwined in capitalism that it creates a lot less space to just be present for the process of what's happening. Yeah. I like, I really like the way you talk about plant medicine. And I think um, like I had a really profound experience with psilocybin during my gender transition. And I think now that you're talking about it, like it kind of breaks down those membranes and like, you know, creates that kind of liminal space. I'm like, I think that's really helpful, like words for what happened in that experience. That was the first time that I like started to see myself as more masculine and started wanting to take he, him pronouns was all like in that experience. And I came out of that and I was like, this is actually me. And I guess that is kind of a form of death and like life. Like, yeah, I can see the connections a lot more. So thank you for that explanation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful. I love that. Wow, there are so many places we could go from here. <laughs> um, ooh, okay. I have one. This is not something we planned, but it's a question that I'm, like, wrestling with, and I feel like I love getting different people's perspectives. And this is not a question that, like, everyone feels comfortable answering. So if you don't want to answer, like, feel free to not. But this is really just like, ooh, how do I lead into it? Okay, this is a very personally motivated question, but not to the extent that like, um, I guess I should say like, I'm a person who's had suicidal ideation for like year, like over 10 years at this point. It just like comes and goes and comes and goes. It never gets to a point where I have like a plan or anything like that. And I'm like, have done work and like have been have been a counselor have had therapists like I'm aware of how to monitor myself and I feel like I always have to give that disclaimer whenever I ask this question um but one of the things that I've noticed with myself as I'm on my healing journey is that sometimes like suicidal ideation will come up and I will have like a clear understanding that like it's not like from me like it's like a spirit that I'm in contact with or a thought that I'm in contact with and then I do some things and then it goes away and I'm more like as I'm opening myself up to like just sitting with myself and having this be a characteristic of you know whatever I'm doing in the world is like putting me in contact with these thought forms and like I'm I feel equipped and safe to like navigate it I'm really curious if you want to share your perspective on like suicide in general and especially like suicide driven 
I, I, I really can't explain why I've had these thoughts for like over 10 years, but I d- didn't really have a super happy childhood. And like, I definitely have like PTSD from things that have happened, but I know that like, it has just been like an ongoing, very light, like microdose of suicidal ideation for years. And I'm wondering if you've ever like met anyone who's had that experience or if you have any perspectives on like suicide or suicidal ideation. That's such a beautiful question. Thank you for asking that. And thank you for sharing vulnerably about that. Um, I do. I, you know, I don't always share this because people get a bit scared or think it's a bit weird, but I am, I don't know if passion is the right word about suicide, but there's a lot of purpose there for me in terms of working and especially destigmatizing suicide and suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. because there is so much shame in our society around suicide. I mean, how many people have completed suicide and, and no one ever talks about it, right? It's like, I've heard so many stories of, oh, I had this aunt, I found out 40 years later, she had actually you know, completed suicide. And everyone said that she had an accident. Um, and it's something we don't talk about, but that is obviously happening every minute of every day. And I think I, I have what might be considered an unusual perspective around suicidal ideation and suicide in general. It seems like you've been exploring this already though, which is, you know, I do a lot of ancestral work and, you know, that's a part of my personal cultural tradition and also the ways that I work with clients. And a lot of times I have seen suicidal ideation and suicidal completed impulses from um, what are sometimes called unwell ancestors and ancestral energy that has not been healed. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, transgenerational trauma is very real, very felt in the body, very felt in the psyche. And we are carrying so many burdens of our people, right? And, And each of us have that different experience, whether it's diaspora, whether it's enslaved communities, whether it's colonization of so many kinds, racism, addiction. One of the benefits of working ancestrally is that you do get to time travel. And that's one of the things that I love, you know, ancestral work is time travel work. We get to not only heal ourselves, but in healing ourselves, help those that came before us who didn't have the resource, didn't have the opportunity. So I think that it's very often connected with addiction and suicide. In the work that I've been doing for almost 20 years, I've seen that happen a lot. And when people have been able to work with those spirits and entities that are haunted, right? They're not only haunting us perhaps, but they are haunted themselves. that we get to help release their burdens and and then release the burdens within our own experience. And like I said, that's sometimes like a little too far out there for people to talk about. So I'm really glad that you brought it up. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I love that. And I appreciate your openness because this isn't something that people talk about. Um, but for what it's worth, that definitely resonates with me. I like as I've been working with my ancestors more and I know that like my 
ancestors have been through so, 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 so much. And a lot of my ancestors weren't mourned properly. And there's just like a lot there, um, especially with like being forced to practice Christianity and not having, um, like having a lot of just like lineages be destroyed as far as like how people are mourned and like what it actually means to honor death and like the Christianization of all that. So as I've been working with my ancestors more and creating more space for them to kind of um, be present with me in my life and to experience things kind of vicariously through me that has helped me a lot because I'll notice that I'll get like extreme deep self-loathing and then I'll do some rituals over time like this will take like a few weeks you know not like in a day which I think is important to say because I think sometimes people are like well I did this and it didn't work um but I'll, I'll create the space in my life to do these rituals with my ancestors and then it will lighten and then it'll come back and then I'll create more space and then it'll lighten and it's really refreshing to hear your perspective on this too as someone who is doing this like you know for many years with various people so thanks for that oh you're so welcome um do you have any thoughts <laughs> okay the only thing that um i was also like before before i asked the suicide question i was like i also want to ask about ancestral magic and how you um recommend that people get started with that or like any of your thoughts on the importance of this and we've kind of made our way here so um, that's the next thing I was going to ask is like, if you feel comfortable sharing anything about your own practice or just in general, giving advice, like however you want to touch on the topic of ancestral magic. Perfect. Yeah. What a beautiful segue. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like ancestral magic is one of the most potent forms of magic that we can practice. It is one of the most inherent in our bodies. It is one of the most true to ourselves and where we come from mm -hmm. and I truly believe and I teach this in all my classes and programs that the more connection we can have with our ancestors the the less we feel the need to take the practices of others and there is more of a desire to connect with the magic that we all come from and and some of us have the experience of that magic growing up, um, such as I did growing up in an ancestor worshiping tradition. And, and some people have lost that for the last 500 years. And wherever you are on that spectrum, there is a thread that can be followed. And one of the ways that people can start following that thread is connecting with the land of, of where they're from, if they, if they know that. And I know that that is a privilege and many folks do not have that access. Even knowing the general region as an energetic and ancestral herbalist, that's one of the first places we can start. Connect with a plant that is, that is from that region. Start to bring that plant into your everyday life. You know, plants are I, I have a dear friend, Leila Fagali, and she's a Lebanese herbalist, and she has this idea of plant sesters, right? Mm -hmm. So they are they are ancestors as well. And especially if we have relationships with our ancestry that are challenging to work with, um, plants can be a portal into 
the limbic system's memory of where we come from, right? It like transcends the logic of, okay, we are in this place right now. I live in this city, I'm doing X, Y, Z. The limbic system holds so much more capacity. And we access that through smell, through taste, through tactile, sensual experience. And that's why I always love to say that I'm a sensual witch because I feel like sensuality in its core is a returning, is a remembering, is a rewilding of our bodies. So that's an, an easier way for people to start to go into the work. Um, Another way is through food. You know, I'm an, a very passionate advocate for my tradition of indigenous foodways, but for foodways of all people and being able to reclaim and remember those foodways that a lot of them have been lost. And, you know, that, that makes my heart hurt, right? It's like all of these traditions that were carried sometimes for thousands of years, this basic primal nutrition piece that we've lost because of racism and capitalism and, and so many processes of assimilation and of erasure. Mm -hmm. So even something as simple as food, right? Researching a stew of you know, your ancestral background, starting to become familiar with it, starting to notice like, what does this bring up for me? What does it feel like when I get to make this for others? You know, there, there's this experience that a lot of us have lost and there are easier ways to go into it. I, I have a lot of students that come to me and say, I'm terrified to work with ancestors, right? It's like, I either A, don't know them, so I don't know what to expect, or B, they were really harmful people, right? It's like the, this idea of romanticizing the ancestors and that they're all these wonderful people that are there to help us, um, in my experience personally and working with other people has not been the reality. And so, of course, there would be a resistance, especially if we are queer, trans, people of color, there is going to be um, a reluctance to diving into that pain. And I think that that's very valid. Um, and I have white students as well who are reluctant to dive into that pain. I had a white student a couple weeks ago who was like, I found out that, you know, my great great, great grandfather owned slaves. What am I supposed to do with that? Right? So it's like, there's all of these places of shadow that we work with, within ancestry, no matter how different they look for all of us. And so I always suggest people to go slow, you know, to, to start with, you know, what's called in my tradition, like the good and well ancestors even just a little hello, right? It's like, it doesn't have to be this big thing and we go in and we heal, you know, seven generations of trauma. It can just be lighting a candle, sitting down and saying, hi, my name is Binyamina Aisha. I know you know who I am. I don't know who you are yet, but I'm really looking forward to getting to meet you. It can be that simple. And I think that the little steps we can make in that direction, as you spoke about before, start a, a sense of forward motion. The more we're open to them, the more they speak to us, then the more we speak to them. And it's this beautiful feedback loop where a deeper and deeper connection can happen. But I always tell people you can start even just a seedling, literally a plant seedling, right? Like it can be as small as you feel comfortable with and that that's important and that it's appreciated and that 
your ancestors hear and see and feel you. That resonates a lot. And I appreciate the part about like um, romanticizing the ancestors and like being more realistic about which ones are like the good and well ones and just starting really slow. I think that's been helping me. Um, this feels kind of complete. I don't know. Do you have anything else? Is there anything else you would like to share? Hmm. I guess one thing that I will share, you know, no matter if we are diasporic peoples or actually living on the land that our communities are from, connection with land in general, I think is also a really important part of ancestral practice. Because when we are separated from the earth, from the non-human realm, we separate ourselves from all non-human realms, including the liminal spirits and beings that are around us. And so the more that we can have connection with something as simple as a tree, right? Something as simple as, um, being able to see, you know, in, in my farming practice, being able to tend to plants and see them take care of us and me also take care of them, the more we get to pull back the veil of our sterilized capitalistic society that wants us disconnected from these things. And the connection with the natural world and the non-human world is um, intrinsically interlinked with the ancestral and the spirit realm. So that's something that I always love to bring into the conversation. Okay, I have a small follow-up question. <laughs> um, because I, a lot of my work has to do with like helping people shed internalized capitalist ideology or like kind of see how capitalism is constraining them and make small steps outward from that. And you've mentioned like the role of capitalism a few times. And I'm just wondering how you conceptualize capitalism as having played a role in all of this. Mm. Just would love to hear like your own words on it. Mm. Oh my gosh. As an anarcho-Marxist, I can just like talk for hours. So I'll try <laughs> and keep it short. I do feel like capitalism has affected our sense of community so deeply and community in this larger sense of our connection to the earth you know, the, the extractive consumptive process that has led us to such a disconnection from the non-human world, that it's impacted the way that we interact with ancestors and spirits because we are so focused on the individual and are conditioned to be so focused on the individual that it seems almost like um, an inconvenience or a waste of time to be doing these practices. And also the, um, as we talked about with death phobia, the sense of consumption around forcing death out of our minds and forcing death out of our lives has deteriorated so many aspects of what community looked like before capitalism. And of course we can't return to what that looked like before, but we can re-envision new ways of connecting to what worked for thousands of years before we came into this relatively new practice of isolation, exploitation, and um, disconnection. 
So I always love to envision even small ways. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, like the small ways with your clients that they can move out into the world because there are small ways. And some of them we've, we've talked about. And of course, there's so many that I would love to, to talk about, but um, that we do get to see that as a practice that we can do both individually and then as a collective. And I always believe that the more we can be doing this work in the community, the better. We are not supposed to be doing this work alone. We have been told that we're supposed to just do it all by ourselves and that's not possible and it's harmful and that's not the way that we are wired to be. We are communal beings that are supposed to be supporting each other in this process, right? Whether it's a number of lactating people feeding one baby to the communal death culture, that um, rituals that have been there for thousands of years, to the connection of true reciprocity with the land, these are the ways that are inherent in our being. And so to return to that as a default rather than the exception, I think is where a lot of healing and transformation can happen. Also revolutionary too. Absolutely. I love it. I love the concept of like, what's a default versus what's an exception. That's something I'm definitely going to sit with more. Oh my God. Thank you so much. This has been such a blessing. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate the energy of you too and the work that you're doing. So thank you. Of course. And then, oh, are you? I was just going to ask because we never got a chance to ask you what you were offering oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> for our audience and like how they can find you. So my upcoming program is called Bloom, and it is a six-month deep dive into the magic of energetic plant medicine. And so we will be working with flower essences, gem and environmental essences, and other forms of subtle plant medicine to connect with our bodies, connect with the land, and to connect with spirit. And then in a few months, I will be holding space for my ancestral healing program called The Remembering. And that will also be a six-month journey, very deep, profound work into connecting with, exploring, and helping heal our ancestral lines, both blood and and non. And um, it is a really beautiful practice to be able to do in a group. And then, of course, I have my one-on-one -on -one sessions, um, which include birth work, death work, officiating, uh, ceremony, whether it's divorce, marriage, funerals, and um, evolutionary astrology work as well. You can find out more information on my Instagram, my first name, Binyamina, B-I-N-Y-A-M-I-N-A-B-E-E, -E, that's Binyamina B, and I look forward to connecting with you. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. That sounds so lovely. Um, and we'll link anything that you send us um, in the show notes so that people can easily find you. You're such a treasure. Thank you. Yes, this is amazing. I'm so Thank grateful. Thank you so much for having me. Bless you all. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Have a wonderful day. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intuitive Wellness. If you enjoy this content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews really help us reach more people. And as a thank you for a review, we will gift you a free intuitive wellness meditation and journaling prompts to help you prioritize intuitive wellness in your life.
Before you hit post on your review, take a screenshot and submit it to the form in our show notes. We'll get back to you with your goods. Until next time, remember that healing yourself is activist.